Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network. Each week, we scour the internet looking for interesting books, and we interview the authors of those books. This week, I'm happy to say we have Dan Kilbride on the show, and we'll be talking about his book, Being American in Europe, 1750 to 1860. I wrote a book that was a little bit like this a long time ago. It was about Europeans, Western Europeans, that traveled to Russia in the 16th and 17th century and what they saw. So it was very interesting for me to read this book about a different group of people who traveled, in fact, to Western Europe uh, to see uh, to see what dances they, they saw and what they said about the place. And as usual, you know, foreign travel is a sort of a mirror for one's own soul, and uh, the Americans sort of discover themselves over there. And it's a very interesting story of a nation becoming a nation. So uh, I encourage you to go out and read the book. Uh, it's fascinating, and I'm really happy to be able to talk to Dan today. Dan, welcome to the show. Hey, Marshall. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. My pleasure. Dan, could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm originally from the Philadelphia area, and I went to uh, St. Joseph's University uh, when it was still mostly a school for commuters. And uh, like a lot of 18-year-olds, I kind of bounced around for a while trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, Originally, I was not ordered would be the wrong word, but uh, encouraged not to study history, <laughs> which is kind of what I wanted to do. My dad was a was a uh, high school uh, history teacher, and uh, he wanted me he wanted me to you know uh, exploit the masses, you know um, oppress the poor, and make a lot of money, mm-hmm. uh, which I appreciate now. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I I tried my hand at, at at the biz school, but it just didn't work for me. And I did I did end up majoring in history. And, uh, you know, I had some really great uh, professors at, at St. Joe's, and, and uh, you know, they, they didn't discourage me from going to graduate school. Um, and so I ended up uh, going to the University of Florida in uh, the 1990s, where I was very fortunate to fall in, first of all, with a really great uh, cohort of grad students uh, who were very supportive, uh, very friendly. There's none of that you know, uh, BS that, you know, graduate students who compete with each other sometimes fall into. And uh, part of that was also due to the other stroke of luck, which I fell into, which was uh, mentoring with Britt Wyatt Brown, uh, who recently died. Uh, uh, This was after he had written his book, Southern Honor. He was working in some others. And, uh, you know, I trained in Southern history with Britt and, um, you know, he was the kind of guy who uh, really encouraged people to develop their own um, research interests and and really follow their you know he didn't you know, he didn't he didn't encourage people to do you know twenty riffs on Southern Honor in a different way. So mm-hmm. he really encouraged people to do their own thing, to reach their own conclusions, and just, even if they were uh, contrary to his own. So it was a great environment, especially for a really young guy like me, straight out of college. You know, didn't take any breaks, so I was still an idiot. Uh, you know, 21, 22 years old, um, it really helped me, you know, figure out you know, that this is really different from undergraduate school, that, you know, this, this is a new deal. So uh, I spent, you know, a, a few very, very um, important and profitable years at University of Florida. Um, then I came to John Carroll University, where I've been since 1997. And while I was here, I, I did publish, uh, you know, a, a revised version of my dissertation called An American Aristocracy. Um, at the University of South Carolina Press, and that looked at the sort of social relationships between uh, southern slave owners, especially wealthy ones, and their counterparts in Philadelphia. So to 
make a very long story short here, you know, Philadelphia is, of course, the closest major city in a free state to a to the slave states. And Philadelphia was a, a big destination for Southerners in a variety of ways. Uh, there's naturally the tourism angle where people would go to Philadelphia to look at, you know, Independence Hall and, uh, and, and things like that. But uh, at the time, you know, uh, the University of Pennsylvania was the most important medical school in the, in the United States. And so, uh, you know, young men who wanted to become doctors would go to Penn. Uh, correspondingly, there was a number of what were at the time called French schools, uh, what we would, I suppose, called finishing schools for young women who would learn how to walk with books on top of their heads and <laughs> dance and to draw and to play the piano and speak French and do things like that. And, um, you know, and... and I looked at a number of other things, and, and so well, the remarkable thing was, you know, when people travel, and so really my first book was uh, looking at a lot of travelers, they write a lot of letters, especially when travel is hard, uh, when it's a big deal, um, and maybe maybe not a once-in-a-lifetime event, but it's definitely one that is going to really distinguish your life. It's going to be, a, you know, going to, going to take the better part of a year to get from, say, Birmingham, Alabama to Philadelphia, and you're going to spend a lot of time there, and you're going to, you know, you, it's going to be memorable. So people wrote letters, and one of the things I discovered in the, in the process of doing the research for that first book was uh, I looked at a lot of stuff from the Middleton family, and the Middletons were very, very wealthy and uh, they're a somewhat jerky family from South Carolina uh, who were incredibly wealthy and did a lot of traveling. And the, one of the things I discovered was in, in the files was many, many letters from Europe. And a few things struck me here. And the first was that I'd never really seen a, 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 any scholarship on that subject. You know, mm-hmm. um, that uh, you know Americans traveling in Europe. Um, I was also, you know, some repositories have uh, the records of their records, and look, you can see what what people have looked at. And in some of these cases, nobody had looked at those Middleton files. You know, they just skipped over them. That you know, oh, they're about people who are traveling in Europe, and we want to study American history, so we're not going to study those. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought, here's a potential opportunity to look at a subject that historians, at least, have not really looked at before, and that doesn't happen that often. You know, um, you know, we're still we're still you know writing books about the Second Battle of Gettysburg, and there's like 25 of those at least. Oh, so, I would say there's a lot more than 25 of them. <laughs> yeah, right. And so it's coming upon a subject. Subject that you know was fairly untrodden was pretty exciting. So I kind of put that in the back of my head and said, "All right, when I'm done this, maybe I'll look at that." And so that that's exactly what happened. And and so when I was looking for a second pro- for a new project in the in the early 2000s, late 1990s, I said, "Well, I'm going to I'm going to look at Americans in Europe." And lo and behold, all across you know libraries across America, there were folders full of diaries and letters and itineraries and receipt books and account books and things like that that really nobody had looked at before. Mm-hmm. And so um, I was very excited to do that. And so uh, that's how this happens, basically. Mm-hmm. Well, there is a kind of a I – don't, I don't know if it's a literary trope, but it's a, it's a kind of writing where somebody – uh, who thinks of themselves as sort of a great mind goes to a foreign country and then writes about it. And I'm thinking of the classic example in American history is uh, Tocqueville. Uh, there are classic examples in Russian history as well. That is Western Europeans that had gone to Russia and mm-hmm. said, this is what Russia is about. And we do sometimes find books about those uh, those people. Uh, but I'm having trouble bringing to mind any book like that 
by an American about Europe? Was there any, is there any, am I missing one that like, you know, the Europeans by, I don't know whom. Well, you're, uh, you know, Henry James is sure, um, yeah. one of the major figures here, but, you know, Henry James is much later than I'm looking yeah, at. So, right. no, in the period that I'm looking at, there is no sort of great, uh, you know, American book that sort of unpacks the European mm-hmm. mind to Americans. I mean, you know, Emerson's got uh, his books on travel, and, you know, he he was fairly well read at the time. So I would say that, you know, Emerson's works uh are probably the closest thing to what you're getting at. Yeah. But on the other, but but that the closest thing isn't isn't it. So right. we're still not there yet. So the, no, there wasn't a, a big um, a big it book yeah. that explained Europe for Americans. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so many Americans are drawn to Tocqueville because he he was so prescient and he said so many things which are still sort of touchstones for us in identifying who we are. And I was just thinking, I couldn't think of anybody like that, at least, you know, pr- prior to someone like James. There are a lot of books like this in the 20th century. I don't know if any of them are any good, but right. it, it becomes kind of an idea. Well, we'll go figure the Europeans out. Here's what they're like. Um, yeah. I would also say like the innocence abroad, but that's so unique and so um, mm-hmm. and it sort of subverts the whole tradition of the travelogue. And it is, of course, later in the 19th century as well. So mm-hmm. you know, I stopped in 1860, and I did that because um, well, one of the reasons I did it was because after the Civil War with the advent of steamships and sort of luxury travel, mm-hmm. uh, there's just an avalanche of Americans going to Europe, and mm-hmm. the source material simply became impossible to handle. And so before 1860, before, you know, the big um, advent of steam travel, you know, the great age of steam travel, the the numbers of people traveling were still manageable. I could, I could handle manuscript materials and simply not be overwhelmed. But mm-hmm. when you get people like Twain and James and that whole crowd uh, in the late 19th century, it's just impossible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about how people and how many people went to Europe in the period you're talking about, 1750 to 1860. How'd they get there and why'd they go? How many were there? Okay, um, I'll discuss the how and, and how many first, uh, because that's a little bit easier. And the basic answer to your question is not many, um, uh, which is great for me, because, again, the source material is very manageable. Um, it gets a lot easier in the 1840s, 1850s, when you do get steam travel and uh, you know, more uh, more technological development and sail travel, where it becomes much more safe. It, it was always pretty safe. Okay, I know it might seem hard to believe to people today who are, you know, we would never, you and I would probably never get on a wooden ship. We would say, the hell with that. I am not getting on that thing. And the captain would say, but, but it's very safe, you know, not, not more than one out of 300 ships sink. And we would say, yeah, exactly. I mean, that, those are not good chances, but it's all relative, you know. So we would never get on that boat, but, but those boats were very, very safe. They really were. And so, um, you know, in the 1840s and 50s, the numbers do leap up. But before then, they're fairly, they're fairly limited. So, you know, especially, you know, in the, in the colonial period, um, and I should say this is generally true without getting into too many details, through the 1830s. And that was travel was difficult. You know, there was no travel industry, okay? And, you know, as, as with all the limits of the travel industry and how it homogenizes travel and it creates sort of a package for people. So if you ever go to like, you know, if you go to Rome or Venice, or, you, know, you see these packs of people with a tour guide in front of them and you say, oh, I would never do that. That's so tacky or whatever. It's there. That's great. That's fabulous. Because what it is, it democratizes travel. You know, when you have a travel industry that does the hard work for you, which basically says, you know, we will get you. Uh, from you know New York to London, and we will make sure you don't starve to death on the way, 
and we will get, you know, there, there are ways to get tickets if you want to go to the Louvre, if you want to go to the National Museum, if you, wherever, you know, these things make it, they do, they do homogenize travel, but they make it so much easier to do it. I mean, if you had to figure out your own way how to get from Boston to Liverpool, how would you do that? I mean, how would, would you walk up to a, a, a captain of a plane and say, how much would you, you know, how much can I give you to, to, to take me? Uh, and, and the captain would say, make sure you bring your own food and blankets and clothes and everything else. That's what people had to deal with, you know, before the 1830s. They had to do it themselves. It was do-it-yourself travel. And it was, it made it very difficult. It was needless to say, needless to say, it was very expensive. Mm-hmm. All right. So, that that limits travel to a very you know limited cohort of people, but the difficulty of travel also limited. If you, if you weren't an adventurous type of person, if you didn't have the kind of privileges and contacts to arrange your own travel overseas and to, to, to you know to make a contact with a captain, to you know to to reserve a, a berth on a ship where they had very few of those, to bring your own food and wine and clothes and a, a, you know a bunch of books that were gonna you're gonna read during the six weeks you're going to you know tra- cross the ocean it's very very difficult so the numbers of people traveling are small and of course other things like wars also limit this so you know in the late uh, 18th early 19th century you've got the french revolutionary and napoleonic wars which you know make it difficult to travel around northern europe for one thing and also make you know uh, travel on the seas very difficult so in those early years uh you know i'm looking at just a couple hundred people uh every year who are brave souls enough to cross the ocean and but these are adventurous people and they're they're pretty opinionated so they're pretty good now beginning in the 1830s when you begin to get the uh the commodification of travel uh where you know, entrepreneurs begin to uh, begin to say hey there's a there's a industry here there's a, there's a group of people here that you know we can make money off of and we need but we need to encourage it so you begin to see uh, the beginnings of guidebooks, uh, which tell people, well, if you go to Europe, this is what you're going to do. You want to see this is a, this is where the cathedral is in, you know, in in this city, and this is where the museum is, and these are the hours of the museum, and this is what you got to do to get in there, and mm-hmm. these are the hotels that don't have fleas, and this is the place to go if you if you want to eat and not get sick, and so those <laughs> kind of things, they do allow people to to go to Europe and be much more comfortable about what they're doing, about saying, you know, this is not, you know, I'm going to, and what that does, of course, is it allows not only, you know, ordinary men to go, but to, uh, for the first time, really, young people and, and women are able to go and, and, and travel and not be able to compromise, you know, notions of feminine delicacy um, and things like that. So beginning in the 1830s, you really begin to get a jump in the, the number of travelers and the kind of travelers. So these are people who have more of a middle class mentality. Um, you know, I don't want to put a dollar sign on what it means to be middle class and distinguish that from from sort of upper class or leisure class people. But middle class people definitely have a different frame of mind and frame of reference. And so, even though the people who are traveling after the 1830s are still wealthy by you know contemporary standards, they're uh, their attitudes, their social attitudes, their cultural attitudes, their orientation to things like work and wealth and leisure is very different from that of prior travelers. So it really does begin to open up in the 1830s and 40s as you get travel that becomes much more uh, uh, routine, uh, safer, cheaper, and more accommodating. Mm-hmm. And so you, you, get, you begin to get several thousand people a year mm-hmm. at that point. 
uh, and that number steadily increases throughout the 19th century. But, you know, as a percentage of the population, it's still well under 1%. Oh, yeah. Uh, so these, these are you know, a very small number of people. And again, in the late 19th century and the 20th century, boom, it really explodes. And, you know, women don't uh, reach parity with men as a, as, as a, as a, as a number as a percentage of travelers until ni- until the 1950s. Hmm. So that takes a very long time, but you know there are a lot of women travelers in the 1830s, 40s, 50s, and I certainly read their materials whenever I came across them. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about a typical American traveler? So, for example, one of the things you say in the book is they again I, you, correct me I don't remember exactly, but they were they were Protestant most of them. They were from the East Coast, most of them. Can you go on with a list like that? And how typical is typical? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's maybe easier to say who they weren't. Um, you know, they, they weren't working class people. Um, you know, I came across a couple of servants, um, you know, who, who, who wrote, you know, the barest of the, the accounts of their trips abroad. Um, so yeah, these people tended to be, uh, they, they were white, of course, although in the last chapter of my book I talk about the uh, African-American abolitionists who traveled abroad in the 1840s and 50s to, you know, raise awareness and to uh, make common cause with uh, the British anti-slavery activists with, with whom they felt such a, a close bond. And, and that was pretty exciting stuff. But these are white people. They are mostly Eastern. Uh, they're mostly from the Eastern seaboard, uh, so from the big cities, uh, you know, from Boston, Philadelphia, New York, Baltimore. Um, but a lot of Southerners as well. You know, my, my first... Um, you know, my my first research stuff was uh, on, on slave owners, and uh, you know my in-laws have lived in the South uh, ever since I've known them, and so they originally lived in Greensboro, North Carolina, which meant I could go to Chapel Hill and Duke and use their tremendous manuscript libraries whenever I wanted, and uh, so I've got a lot of material from from wealthy Southerners. So you know, the, the traveler that I'm dealing with are people with wealth and means and sort of a cosmopolitan sensibility travel to Europe to begin with, uh, but they're largely Eastern, as you said, Protestant for sure, because they're just, you know, until the 1840s, there's just very few Catholics in the United mm-hmm. States, and so these are these are going to be Protestants, and one of the things they go to Europe to do is to look at the Catholics, oh, look, there's Catholics <laughs> um, and so, you know, uh, that, that's, it's almost like looking at the chimps, you know, at the zoo, it's, it's, it's a spectacle, so you can't see Catholics at home because there aren't that many, but you can see them in, uh, you can see them in Paris, and well, not really, because they don't really practice religion that much in Paris in the 1840s, but Italy uh, certainly is a place where you're going to see actual Catholics in their natural habitat. Um, so, yeah, they're Protestant, they're wealthy, they're white, they're largely Eastern, um, you know, until the 1840s and 50s where you do get people from, say, St. Louis and Birmingham and a couple of Chicagoans and people like that and Clevelanders and so forth. But largely these are people from, you know, New England, uh, Eastern New York, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, and 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 so forth. So the the more developed, and uh, and wired in, and and places where the transportation revolution has uh, has, has moved and and established connections by by the 19th century. People I'm looking at. So yeah, they are not typical. And I, I want to you know I want to emphasize that because. Uh, I don't want people to say that, you know, I'm, I'm looking at average Americans here. I am not looking at average Americans because right, um, right. they just couldn't afford it. It was, it was just not in their uh, wheelhouse to say, let's go to Europe, you know, <laughs> let's, let's go jump on a flight and go to Heathrow. It, it, right. They couldn't do that, so they didn't. Um, right. So these, are, these people are more typical than the travelers of the 1810s, 1800s, 1790s. 
those people really were, you know, the cream of the crop, uh, you know, if, if, for leisure travelers. So travel does democratize in the beginning of the 19th century up to 1860, but it is not a democracy. Right. Absolutely not. So let me ask this. Why can we say anything general about why they went? Yeah, that's that's uh, that's the, one of the clinchers, isn't it? I mean, what were they doing there? Um, yeah. You know, I begin the book by talking about this guy named Harry McCall, um, and you know, the thing that one of the questions I had, you know, going into this was, well, what did Americans? What were they doing there? Because they could have gone somewhere else. You know, they could have gone to Saratoga Springs, or they could have gone to <laughs> which is somewhere nice. which was just as comfortable, but a lot easier to get to. You know, um, so why would they do this? Why would it, it's so difficult and expensive? And then I kind of came across this letter from Harry McCall, who's sitting there writing his brother and saying, you know, oh, I'm sitting here in Rome and looking at these people, and oh, you know, thank God we're not these people. You know, we're, we will never, we have nothing in common. He actually says, we have nothing in common with these people. Nothing. Um, and, you know, you know, wherever I go, especially in England, he says, I am going to be an American. Mm-hmm. We have nothing. And that's like, well, why did you go? That's a hell of a, of a trip to take. And a lot of inconvenience just, just to reject everything you're seeing, you know? And so what it, it occurred to me in my spin on that letter, right or, rightly or wrongly, was this guy is protesting too much. This guy is striking a pose. And it's not real. This, this guy, whether he likes to admit it or not, he does have a connection with these people, with these Europeans. Because otherwise, what would he be doing there? It's just, it's just too expensive to go somewhere in order just to say, in your face. You know, <laughs> I am not you. You know, he must have, he was trying too hard to deny this connection. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and, and certainly Americans have many motives when they visit Europe. There's no one motive. So, you know, one thing I, one group of people I looked at were what well, we would call business travelers. Uh, you know, people who went to Europe uh, to raise money, to raise capital, uh, looking for business opportunities. But the thing was that, you know, in, in this era, Travel was such a special event, a once-in-a-lifetime event, that you never just went to Europe to, you know, do business and came home. You, you did at least a little bit of tourism, you know, because you, you couldn't waste that opportunity. You had to do it. So everybody who travels, whether they go for go to Paris for medical school, go to Edinburgh for medical school, they with their studying law, if they're going uh, because of the medical advice of their doctor, if they're going for business they almost always engage in some kind of tourism. And so, you know, uh, I, I tried to cast as, as wide a net as possible uh, as I looked at these people. So there are a whole variety of motives. But I think one of the, the, the main reasons why people travel is to uh, establish sort of their, uh, you know, what Richard Bushman, a historian, called, you know, refinement. Mm-hmm. That, you know, Europe whether you like it or not, was still the place where cultural legitimacy came from. That Americans in this era were seeking to define their own national identity. You know, what does it mean to be an American? Because the United States didn't grow sort of organically like a, you know an ancient country like France or Germany or England um, which traced which trace their histories for you know thousands of years you know the United States 
you know, 1789 or 1783, whatever you want to, whatever date you want to say, you could tr- you could trace it. You could pin the beginning of the United States in time very precisely, and that left Americans with many opportunities, but also with a dilemma. And that was, you know, what do we have in common with each other? What makes us Americans? Uh, I was very influenced by a, by a an essay by a guy named John Marin, who's a professor at Princeton, about uh, where he called the early United States a roof without walls. He said the United States is a government without a culture, a government without a national identity. And Americans felt that that want of a national identity, a cement to hold them together, very, very acutely in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. And so, you know, one of the reasons that people travel to Europe is to say, oh, well, what makes us tick? You know, we are obviously Europeans, you know, but we're also not Europeans. So what is it that we have in common with these people, and what is it that distinguishes us from these people? So whether they admitted it or not, and whether they did this consciously or not, and some people did it very consciously, Americans traveled to Europe in order to figure out who they were mm-hmm. and what distinguished them as a, as, a, as, a, as a people linked to but separate from Europe. And one of the things I you know, expected to find, and everybody... I think, whether they admit it or not, comes to a project with certain preconceptions. They expect to find certain things. Mm-hmm. And I, I did, when, when I began this project, I did expect to find Americans being quite hostile to Europe. To say, you know, well, you know, we, these are, you know, look at these aristocrats, look at these Catholics, look at these uh, hordes of beggars, and so forth and so on. And this is not who we are. We are th- that, that is exactly not what we are. And so we're going to reject this. And, you know, I, I did find, you know, a good bit of that, but I also was very surprised to find Americans who were willing to, you know, not only make connections with Europe and to say that, you know, this is where we come from and we are linked to this, um, but Americans who are open to learning from Europe and admitting that Europe was superior to the United States in many respects. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly, you know, I came across a lot of jingoistic travel, you know, travelers who, like Harry McCall, I said, you know, we're better than this, we're superior, you know, we're going to show these Europeans how it's done. But I was very surprised to find Americans who were very open to admitting that Europe was more developed, more sophisticated, and that they had, they had a lot to learn from Europe. And so, you know, I did encounter Americans who were very open to receiving Europe on its, as much as they're on its own terms as they could allow themselves to receive it. So, you know, so there's a whole bundle of reasons, but, you know, I think when it, if I boil it down to one thing that I really wanted to explore in the book, it's how Americans tried simultaneously to use travel to define themselves as a separate and unique people in, in world civilization, but also to establish themselves as the westernmost branch of Western civilization mm-hmm. to admit that we are in fact Europeans mm-hmm. and what do we have to contribute to the civilization? Mm-hmm. I'm reminded a little bit, this is an analogy of perhaps a, an orphan who's been adopted and then learns about their birth mother or father and says when they're 22, I want to meet my birth mother or father, <laughs> you know, because they're, they kind of do and they kind of don't and they go into it with certain expectations and they understand that they're from there, but <laughs> exactly they're going to find and they bring a lot of expectations with them and you know it's not exactly a just sort of a 
hearty greeting that they're expecting. It's a, there's a little bit of tension there, you know. Yes, that, that, that that's that's a useful analogy in some ways because yeah. you know in, in in one way that you know the orphan doesn't know what they're going to get when yeah, they right. open the door or when somebody answers the phone. Right. Americans did though think that they knew what they were getting when they went to Europe. They had these very definite ideas from from novels and from history and from geography and from a whole array of cultural sources. They, they thought they understood Europe pretty well. So, mm. um, and in many cases, they had to admit that, they, that, 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 that those sources were all wrong and that they were not getting what they thought they were going to get. Mm. But in a lot of ways, your, your analogy does work. And mm. there, there is that sense about, you know, okay, um, I'm re- I can handle this. You know, I'm ready yeah. to... Um, to confront where I came from. Right, exactly. So when I was dealing with foreign travelers' accounts, that's why I always called them foreign travelers' accounts of Russia in this case, these Europeans that went there. One of the questions that I found most interesting to ask and, and the most productive in my own research is what they noticed and what they didn't notice. Uh, can you, let's begin with a harder question. What did they didn't notice? Can you, is there any sort of vast swathe of European life that just is absent from the accounts that you read, oh, just like they just didn't yeah, see it. Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, obviously, the hardest thing for Americans to access is the private life of Europeans. You know, what it looks like inside their households. What do people eat? What do what are relations between husbands and wives and children and parents? And you know, what's what's the domestic life of Europeans? And this is interesting because what Americans want to get out of Europe changes over time. In the in the in the late 18th century, Americans really are not interested in the inner world of Europeans. They want to know about institutions. They want to know about the church. They want to know about courts. They want to know about government. It's sort of the old idea of the grand tour Mm -hmm. that, you know, the British young men in the 17th and 18th centuries would, you know, leave home after going to Oxford or Cambridge and they'd spend two or three years on the continent whoring and touring and going to art museums and things like that. And so that, that ideal of the Grand Tour is very powerful, and it's powerful today. Mm-hmm. But it was very powerful, you know, in the 18th and early 19th centuries. And so, but that doesn't leave any room for, you know, going to people's houses and seeing, you know, what their kitchen looks like and so forth. Um, so Americans in the 18th century who are overwhelmingly young men just are not interested in doing those things. Um, but, you know, in the early 19th century, when you get, when you begin to see the rise of middle-class domesticity, um, as a you know, as as people say, you really want to understand what makes a nation tick. It's family life. It's you know, it's husbands and wives and marriages and the church and, and you know, re- private religion and, and and you know, family life. And so then you begin to see travelers saying, "Well, I do want to see you know the inner lives of Europeans. I want I want to see what are relations between men and women like." Uh, you know, do are women respected? Are they considered, you know, to be the you know, the, the the source of morality and piety? And uh, you know, are is there fidelity between husbands and wives? And what do, what do children do? And so forth. And so there's real interest in finding that. The problem is, it's very hard to get at those things because, first of all, you, you need access. You know, how do you get into somebody's house and see what their private life is like? Uh, you need to know them. You need contacts. You know, you need uh, letters of recommendation. You need friendships. And most Americans who travel in the early 19th century simply don't have those. So they, they want to access the private lives of Europeans because all the cultural prompts that they come to Europe with tell them that if you really want to know what, people, what makes a people tick, 
it's their private life, and so Americans want to see that, but they really don't have access to it. Um, only, only, you know, the relatively limited number of Americans who had European friends, or you know, had a schoolmate, or you know, sometimes you get people who have been who are going to medical school in Paris, and so they make friends with the Parisian students or the French students, and they do get access to their houses, but usually they don't, and so the problem of access makes it very, very difficult to see how Americans. Mm-hmm. related to people on their own terms. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, there's a language barrier. Um, you know, then as now, <laughs> very few Americans spoke anything else than English. Uh, I know this is something that has driven Europeans crazy for hundreds of years. Um, I'm also, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Inglorious Bastards with you know, Quentin Tarantino's movie about World War II or Diane Kruger plays an actress who says to Brad Pitt, you know, I assume that you Americans don't speak any other language than English. And of course she's right. Um, So the language barrier kept Americans out of seeing Europeans on their own terms, especially in their private lives. So that was something that is relatively closed. And so even when Americans do, do get access to it, even if only glimpses of it, you know, they're, they're so, they have so many assumptions and so many cultural preconceptions that it's really hard for them to see it. I mean, it's always impossible, of course, to see it objectively, but it's very, very difficult to, for Americans to, to see Europeans private domestic lives in anything like a dispassioned objective sort of way. Mm-hmm. They're, they're just so limited by language, so limited by access and so limited by their own you know, I guess I'll say Anglo-Saxon middle-class ideas about what proper family life really is, that it's just very, very difficult for them to see it on anything like its own terms. And so when I do get a traveler who has extensive knowledge here, someone like George Bancroft, who, uh, you know, the was a, a major public figure in the mid-19th century um, uh, and a historian, um, spent years in Europe as a student, as a young man, and really, I think, uh, and especially in Germany, which is pretty rare. Um, and I think he really, one thing he understood was that he understood his own limitations. He understood that you can't just go to Europe, speed through it, you know, in two weeks on a train and think you got it. And he, he was at least humble enough to know that I don't understand this place. So he, he, his, his uh, reflections and those of people like him are, are really, you know, gold nuggets in what I'm looking for. But because those people at least understand their own limitations and they're very humble about the conclusions that they make. But when they do make a conclusion, I got to pay attention mm-hmm. because, you know, if they think they, they understand something, they probably do. Mm-hmm. So let's turn the question around and ask what they always saw. And I'm thinking of things that, you know, in my own travels to Europe, I've noticed that all Americans notice, for example, any American that goes to Germany and spends any time there will come back and say, you know, the weird thing about Germans is they don't cross against the light because they don't. (laughs) It's a weird thing. Or if they go to Russia and they spend any amount of time, they'll say, well, Russians drink hard liquor at table sometimes. And they do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they drink hard liquor at table. Um, And, you know, there are other things like that. Or, you know, Irish people drink in pubs, but they don't drink at home. That's just another thing that American will notice. Were there things that that the Americans always notice? And I know, just let me say one more thing, that in the case of the travelers that I dealt with that went to Russia in the 16th and 17th century, they always noticed a lot of things about orthodoxy. That is the orthodox Christian religion. They were fascinated by it. And they always go on and on about it. Is there any, can you list a number of things that the Americans always notice and what they thought of them? Sure. They always notice the police. (laughs) 
they always miss the police. Um, or, or, or the military. You know, if they were, if they walked down the city and they saw a guy, you know, on a horse walking by with, a, you know, in a uniform, that was something that was just absolutely absent in the United States. You just would not find that in in, in an American city. Uh, policemen, especially, you know, armed military men. And of course, this is a common sight in Europe. Um, some sometimes more than others. So, you know, if you're an American traveling in Europe in 1849, you're going to see a lot of military men patrolling uh, the streets. And so Americans always remark on this. And sometimes, you know, they'll say, they'll respond to this in very nationalistic ways. Like, oh, you know, in Europe, they need to keep control over the people by the military. But in the United States, we don't need to have this because we've got it all under control and we're a free people and yada, yada, yada. Other times, though, you'll get people who say, well, I was in London. And every corner in London, there's a policeman. And, um, you know, we don't have this in America, but boy, you know, London really works. You know, <laughs> it's this huge city that we don't have the like of in the United States, but I, I, I don't know how it just doesn't spin out of control, but it works. And if you go to these policemen, they will answer your questions. If you say, you know, tell me where the British Museum is, they will tell you. And so, you know, they all, Americans always notice the cops and the soldiers. Uh, sometimes and usually in, in a very negative and self-congratulatory way, but some of the more you know honest uh, travelers will will take the next step and say, all right, why are there so many policemen? Why are there so many cops? And what do they do? You know, what's their what's their role? You know, are they actually doing something uh, that's that's valuable here? So they always notice the police. Um, what else do they know? They notice uh, they notice the poor. Uh, they notice the poor, uh, especially beggars. Certainly, the United States did not lack, especially the the, the great cities uh, of the you know, the Northeast, like you know uh, Boston and New York and Philadelphia, had major slums, uh, which were the rivals, if not that they did not surpass in 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 desperation, uh, you know the great cities of Europe. So Americans had the, the poor. Uh, to, to confront, despite their own national mythology, that there were no poor in the United States. Um, but the nature of European poverty really differed from American poverty, I think. And that, most of all, you really see it in the Americans' account of beggars. That is, these desperate people who come up to them and beg for coin. And, you know, these are people who are ragged, sometimes completely naked, uh, many of whom are very young children, um, this is just not something you will find in a traveler's account of the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you know, large numbers of homeless people who are just absolutely destitute and are just begging for coin when they see a traveler uh, who looks like an easy mark. So that's something that Americans really notice. And again, it, it, there, there's an element of national self-congratulation there that says we don't have these people. We don't have beggars in the United States. And there's a lot I could say about poverty and, you know, national blindness here. But certainly Americans noted uh, the the, the ubiquity of beggars uh, in in lots of parts of Europe, especially the continent. Mm -hmm. That's one other thing they noticed. And some of the other things they noticed are are more obvious. Um, They noticed um, the antiquity of Europe, Mm -hmm. uh, especially vis-a-vis the United States. That, you know, know, uh, the United States... Everything is new, and uh, everything might be rickety and poorly made, but it was new. And in Europe, Europeans have castles, and they have ruins, and they have uh, castles, and these things simply 
the United States did not have. And so Americans, you know, went to Europe uh, partly in search of antiquity, simply because of something you couldn't find in the United States. I mean, you, you could travel around the United States, you could go to like Saratoga Springs or wherever, and you could have a good time. But you were there are some things you, if you wanted to see them, you had to go to Europe. And those that was the antiquity. That was you know the castles, the cathedrals, the old ancient buildings, uh, the ruins. Those are things that Americans they they noticed them, but they noticed them because they actively sought them out. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was something that was on everybody's agenda. So the antiquity of Europe was something that people certainly noticed. Uh, uh, you know that was that was very high on their agenda. Mm-hmm. And the, I, the last thing I would say is that you know Americans noticed uh, the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. They noticed the, uh, especially if they traveled outside of England and Scotland and moved into you know southern France and uh, and southern Europe, and Spain and Italy especially, they would notice uh, not only Catholic uh, art and architecture, but they would see Catholic piety. And that was something that I found deeply disturbing and, uh, and, and very new and unexpected. You know, uh, so, yeah, they noticed Catholics and Catholic uh, uh, ritual when they, when, they were in a, when they were in a place, you know. France is difficult, is different because, especially Paris, where there are Catholics, but they don't really practice their faith that much. Mm-hmm. The only thing Americans noticed vis-a-vis your question is that you know if you if, if you're on if you were in Paris on a Sunday it was just another day only maybe more so uh, you know people didn't the shops didn't close uh, people didn't you know wear black or they weren't very serious because they weren't going to church it was it was, a, it, was like a, it was a feast day it was a happy day <laughs> and this deeply disturbed a lot of Americans who thought that you know every day should be like Sunday and you know every day is silent and gray uh, and it needs to be a day of you know very serious piety uh, but when they went to somewhere like Italy and Spain where the Catholic Church was not just uh, present but people practiced Catholic piety that was something people noticed because there was, there was nothing like it in the United States, and mm-hmm. Americans found it deeply, deeply uh, unnerving. Mm-hmm. I guess one thing that surprises me, and maybe you're about to mention this, is the absence of a kind of political dimension. Because, you know, if you look at Tocqueville, for example, who was a different kettle of fish. I mean, he thought of himself, I don't know if he thought of himself as a social scientist, but he was acting like one. He, mm-hmm. he really begins from the premise that Americans are equal. They, they live in what he called the condition of equality. And this was a, a very strange thing to him, and he, if everything follows from that. Um, what do the Americans think about uh, European political institutions, and particularly aristocracy? Yeah, uh, Americans uh, were largely armchair sociologists, you know, in this respect. They really did. They really did think about, you know, um, what makes us tick as Americans and what separates us from Europe and what what brings us together. And clearly, politics and government was one thing that distinguished most of Europe from the United States. And so Americans really did confront and try to wrestle with, as you said, aristocracy and the accoutrements of aristocracy. So courts and uh, balls and, uh, uh, you know, presentations to great people and things like that. So, you know, how do they make, how do they do do that? And there was a lot of ambivalence about that because on the face of it, right, if you simply look at this objectively, Americans should have rejected aristocracy out of hand. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, that was completely anathema we would hope. to what, whatever the United States stood for 
It did not stand for aristocracy. It, it, you know, it believed in at least the principle of equality in front of the law. So Americans should have just you know, rejected that out of hand. But even today, Americans don't do that. As we know, whenever the Princess Diana train goes through the United States and Americans flock to that, it's, what is more anti-American than the British royal family? I mean, I thought we'd settled this in 1783, but apparently we haven't because there's still a lot of, 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 of you know, deference to uh, aristocracy. So there's something about... Uh, aristocracy and it's and it and it's everything that surrounds it that Americans still uh, respect and res- and 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 will defer to the the cultural authority of people who have a title. They might be buck tooth imbeciles, but if you've got a title, you Americans will pay attention to you. You know what? Do, what do Americans naturally defer to? It's somebody with an English accent. They just naturally assume they're more intelligent than they are. Well, they are. Um, no. <laughs> So it's crazy. So Americans had a very ambivalent relationship with aristocracy. So on the one hand, they knew that aristocracy represented everything the United States had established its independence to reject. And so it was their patriotic duty to reject aristocracy. Yet at the same time, their pursuit of refinement and, you know, and, and cultivation told them that you know, aristocracy was the highest level of cultural attainment and they should respect it. So there was a there's a real contradiction at the heart of what Americans are, are trying to do to Europe. And so there's, some, there's a very wide spectrum of American responses to aristocracy and forms of class privilege. On the one hand, I guess the one extreme is total rejection. This is the hyper-nationalistic, hyper-patriotic response to aristocracy where you simply, you know, the king or the pope walks by you or in, in, a, in a parade or something and you refuse to take your hat off. You just say, I'm going to sit here and I'm not going to respect you because I'm an American and damn it, you know, I, this, is, this is who I am. Now, that might well get you beat up in Europe. And that does happen to some Americans who, you know, somebody will walk there. There's one, uh, there's one very hyper-Protestant minister who goes to Europe and uh, there's this Catholic ceremony where all these Spaniards sort of just bow down and prostrate themselves. And he refuses. He's standing up. And, and then he realizes everybody is looking at him. And they're looking pissed. Uh, they're mad. And he says, maybe I should bow down, you know. <laughs> Get out of here alive. And so there's a very sort of um, the one the one on the one hand there's the extreme response to aristocracy which is the very self-conscious very uh, pretentious rejection of aristocracy so refusing to doff your cap refusing to that refusing to refer somebody by their title okay on the other extreme there is the uh, uh, just just accepting it completely and saying, yes, you're an aristocrat, I love you, please, you know, please talk to me and I'll feel better about myself. Um, And so, you know, one of the things that I found, you know, here and there is Americans who are dying, dying to be what's called presented at court. Yeah. That is, you know, to meet the king, to meet the queen, to meet the prince. And, you know, if I need to dress up, if I need to wear a sword, if I need to, you know, bow down, if I need to kiss somebody's ring, absolutely, positively, I will do that. And so, you know, those Americans, and there are a lot of them, um, they, they have, you know, they really show you that this very, this very uh, ambivalent sort of uh, relationship that Americans have to arist- aristocracy. Now, those people also tend to be rejected by their fellow Americans for being so callow and shameless mm-hmm. that they, you know, that they put American principles to shame. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. But there's the larger number of people who are in the middle and say, okay, you know, aristocrats, and I, I did, you know, I, I remember finding this great uh, line from this one woman, and she said, you know, I'm in Europe, you know, I'm here to see the sights. And aristocrats are kind of a sight. Mm-hmm. They're, they're just, it, it's, it's just like seeing the Tower of London, you know, I, I want to see the Queen. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean I respect her, it doesn't mean I, you know, want to be her, but you know, how can I go back to go back home and say, I didn't see the queen. Mm-hmm. I didn't see Victoria. I've got to do that, you know? And, you know, and, and this one guy who was sitting next to her where she says, Oh, you know, I mean, she was there to see the crystal palace exhibit in London and the Tsar of Russia was there. And she was like, I want to go see the Tsar. And mm-hmm. this guy who was an Englishman said, Oh, you're an American. Aren't you supposed to, aren't you supposed to reject all those things? You know, he was kind of living this up because he thought he caught her in a contradiction. Where she said, "Well, no, I, I don't like the czar. I just want to see the guy. You know, it's like you know, it's like seeing the crown jewels, or it's like seeing you know, uh, it's like seeing the the, uh, the Sistine Chapel. It's, it's he's a he's a person, but he's also a tourist attraction, and I yeah. want to see him. Yeah. And so, yeah, Americans did. You know, when it came to aristocracy and monarchy and things like that, there's a real contradiction. We see Americans who are trying to negotiate this very tricky terrain." about how do you be a Democrat and a good Republican, small R Republican, small D Democrat, but also to make a connection with Europeans who still respect those things. And, you know, where if you're you're trying to be a cultivated, cultured, middle-class person, um, the way that you behave, the the proper standards of behavior come from aristocratic culture. So how do you negotiate that very tricky train? Americans... Mm -hmm really didn't figure that out yeah, yeah. during the time period that I'm looking at. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think Tocqueville would have something to say about this. I don't think he noted it, but you know, what do you do if you're in the condition of equality and we're all born equal and are equal before the law and we're supposed to think and act that way. And, and Tocqueville says that about Americans, that they are not very showy in that way. How, how do you differentiate yourself if you're a member of the Philadelphia society? You, you really don't have it. There's really no way to do it in America. You have to go and well, see the queen or something. Yeah, that's right. I mean, g- going to Europe was, you know, a, 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 and, and this did work for people. Yeah. Who, you know, they had this cachet of, of, of wow, you've been to it. Uh, and you, one of the uh, great uh, cultural uh, touchstones of this is uh, James, James Fenimore Cooper's novel, Home is Found, where I, I found this very useful, uh, where this, this woman who has been to Europe and has come back, she refers to European travelers, American travelers in Europe, as as as, as the haji, <laughs> as people who as people who have made the pilgrimage. Oh, she said, that's what that that that's what it is for Americans to go to Europe is to make a pilgrimage, yeah, yeah. and it's it's a it's a holy site to yeah. say that you've been there because you have you've got credibility that other people don't have. You know, Americans have read about Europe. They've seen pictures of the Tower of London, and they've seen pictures of the, the Sistine Chapel. But to actually say that you'd been there, yeah. and you'd seen it, and you touched it, that gave you a lot more credibility than somebody who had not done that. And so it, it, there is a, an aspect of, 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 of cultural authority that comes from being able to say that, yep, I've been there. Yeah, I uh, you know I met the Pope, or I you know met the Duchess of Gloucester, or whatever. Right. I mean, there's yeah. a little of that. A little of that is still left in certain sectors of American life. I know that uh, in uh, on the jackets of books, sometimes you can see authors, and they say, "I split my time between New Haven <laughs> and." They never say Wichita. 
It's always New Haven and London or New Haven and Paris or, you know, New Haven and Seville. They don't split their time between New Haven and Iowa City. (laughs) Yeah, not a lot of that, is there? (laughs) Not a lot. Um, And then there's also academia, of course, whereas if you've gone to if if you've had any connection with Oxford or Cambridge, that really counts for something. Um, which, which, you know, I mean, you probably know a little bit about that. That's still, a, still something that has cachet, you know, like, oh, well, my word. Uh, yeah, I mean, but you're right. I mean, that kind of, and there's an unspoken, you know, aspect of, you know, aristocracy yeah, there. I don't think it exists. Yeah, I don't think it exists anyplace else in American culture, though. I just don't. I think, I think people are suspicious, mostly, of Americans that have spent too much time overseas. Oh, <laughs> well, I don't know. You know, I mean, there is, I still refer to that, you know, I go back to that thing about Princess Di and the exhibit of her, you know, wedding gown and everything yeah, like right, that. Yeah. Americans suck that stuff up, yeah. and it drives me crazy because it yeah. is. What is more un-American than, you know? I, I don't think we need to be hostile to yeah. it, but you know, that's, <laughs> that's just. But I think you're right. It's become cool. kind of Disneyland now. It's just something to see, and I don't think nothing really follows from it. And these places have been Americanized. I mean, truth be told, if you go over there, they have governments that are fundamentally like ours, and their sure. arist- aristocracies are gone in all, for all intents and purposes. So. There's only a little bit to that to see, so you can go to some royal tourism, you know. So anyway, I wanted to uh, I wanted to ask um, one other question. In in the, again, harkening back to my own research, one of the things I found was that these Europeans had gone to Russia and they'd come back and they'd written books, let's say, about what they saw. Well, the peculiar thing is not only did they have an impact in Europe about the image of Russia, but they were translated into Russian. Ah. And then the Russians started to use them in order to see themselves, a little bit like Tocqueville, the way Americans will now look at Tocqueville. This book was written in, in French and published in France. We look at that book and we say, well, this is about us, and this is what we're like. Is, mm-hmm. is there any sort of similar sort of thing in the European context where people said, oh, this American came and figured us out? No, I don't think there is, um, at, le- at least in the period I'm looking at, that Europeans are not reading American books. You know, there's a very famous insult hurled at Americans, right, in the 18, early 19th century. It's like, who reads an American book? Who reads an American play? And that's still the case. I mean, uh, Europeans really are, are, do not know what Americans think of them, and they really don't care. Now, there are some limits to this. So, you know, in the early, in, in the sort of the years around the war of 1812, uh, and for a couple of years afterwards, maybe a couple of decades, there was some a literary you know cold war going on between the United States and and, and Britain, especially where you had British travelers you know in the spirit of Tocqueville coming over to the United States and writing and traveling all over the place, and then they go home and write books. Mm-hmm. So Americans read these books like crazy because they were very culturally insecure vis-a-vis Europe. So sure they read Tocqueville, but they also read uh, Basil Hall and uh, Francis Trelope and uh, uh, Francis Marriott and these other travelers, many of whom were bitterly hostile toward the United States and just were writing for a British audience and said, we do not want to become like these tobacco-spitting, you know, vulgar... Uh, you know, uh, just pell-mell Americans. That is right. not what we want to right. become. Right. But there really is no equivalent on the other side of the Atlantic where these people are saying, hmm, uh, and Americans read these things because they were very interested in, in knowing what people thought about them. Yeah. But uh, to to my knowledge, Europeans are not doing the same thing unless they are people who really want to establish a relationship with the United States. And, and, and that's since you do get people who are reading these travel accounts and they're very... Published travel accounts 
tend to be in some ways different than private travel accounts because they're written for an audience and they expect to, they want to in some ways ratify the audience expectations. And so they tend to be a lot more nationalistic than private travel yep. accounts not yeah. designed for publication. Right. And so when you're when some Europeans, you know, like uh, there's a woman named Maria Edgeworth who's a prominent British woman of letters and she's very pro-American and she's very dismayed by the tone of American travel accounts t- toward Britain in the 18 teens and 20s. And when she when she actually reads one that is very uh uh middle brow and very uh, uh, conciliatory towards Great Britain and she actually writes the author and says thank you for writing this book because it's time that we Americans and Britons knocked it off mm-hmm. and just realized that we're cousins and we need to be friends and so there, there is some of that but not nearly as much on the, on the <laughs> European side of the ocean as there is on the American side of the ocean mm-hmm. to, to, to be very blunt I have not found a great deal of evidence that Europeans really cared what Americans yeah, thought right. about them. Right. Well, we did finally get uh, the European commentator that we wanted, and that was Alistair Cook. Because he loved Alistair America. Cook, yeah, absolutely. So he loved yeah. America, so we loved him. Yeah, he was, he was great. Yeah, we just loved him. And he had that Ponzi British accent, too, which made yeah, him sound now, really uh, smart. Bernard uh, Henri Levy from oh, France yeah. is oh, also right. trying exactly. to. Uh, oh, yeah. No, I was at he's the, trying. Yeah, I was, at the, I was at the Atlantic Monthly when they sent him on um, tour. He was going to be the next uh, Tocqueville. That didn't, yep, work, I, it didn't work out very well. But, um, it did not. No. <laughs> In fact, uh, you know, anybody who's listening, if you want to read the funniest book review ever, is the book review of, 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 of Henry Levy's book, and I forget what it's called, but it was written by Garrison Keillor in the New York, review, New York Times book review, and yeah. it is a riot. Yeah, not um, right, but I will definitely go look it up, because I remember this, where we were sort of trying to coordinate him across the country and things like this, and it was very, it was very funny. He had a lot of stereotypes about Americans in his head, so yep. he, he really did. Um, but he did travel, I mean, I'll give him that. He, he went all over the place. We sent him all he over sure the place. Did, yeah. Yeah, he sure did, yeah. He, did. So he definitely did. So um, we've taken up... Oh, actually, I want to ask one more question really quickly, though, because um, we were talking about politics. A lot of Americans were there during 1848, the revolutions of 1848. What did they say about that? The American travelers were generally uh, really uh, positive um, and, and really wanted these to work. Um, there's been a lot written on the revolutions of 1848 and American reactions to it. So I, I spent a lot of time thinking about this uh, because naturally there's a spectrum of opinion. And you know, one thing that Americans, especially in 1848, and, and afterwards, we're wondering about is what? Why do these? Why do these revolutions fail? You know, why can't the French, in particular, just figure this out? You know, they they not only get it wrong, but they get it wrong in such bloody, brutal ways that why can't they just establish a republic? We did it. Why can't they do it? And so, you know, the, the American. So the Americans who travel abroad in, in the 1840s and 50s generally are very enthusiastic towards American, you know, the, the English, or rather the European revolutions, are probably much more enthusiastic and positive than Americans in the United States. Um, and again, this is probably, you know, I forget what this is called. It's like uh, just, just the, the people who traveled tended to be cosmopolitan, very sophisticated people. Mm-hmm. And so um, they tended to be more enthusiastic, more positive towards the European revolutions than, than the general population back in the States, who were also generally enthusiastic towards these things. So they really wanted them to work. And, and when they failed, and of course the revolutions of 1848 
failed. Mm-hmm. They failed to establish republics in, right. in Rome and in Paris and in Frankfurt and everywhere else. Um, so Americans kind of thought, what went wrong? You know, what, what happened here? Uh, why can't they just establish it? Why can't they just kick the kings out and establish free government? And so there's a lot of thought about this. Um, you know, and, and of course, in the 1840s and 50s, you are beginning to see the beginnings of, uh, of ethnology and racial science, mm-hmm. and so some people simply say that you know, Europeans are, you know, the French are not only a separate nation; they're a different race, mm-hmm. and they just don't have the, you know, they just don't have biologically what it takes the right democratic to, stuff, right? That the Anglo-Saxons obviously have, mm-hmm. but they don't, and the Italians, and the, but generally travelers say that's not that's idiot. Stuff you know, the, the, the Italians are not a separate race, whatever that means from from Americans or from Europe, for, for, from Britons or whatever. They they may be a separate ethnicity, but they, they don't have you know. They're, they're trying to kind of struggle with this kind of pseudo scientific language about race. But most travelers simply say, you know, it takes a long time to establish the foundations of free government, and we shouldn't expect too much from people who have no tradition of this at all. Who have who are being oppressed by the Catholic Church, who have real problems with poverty and war and illiteracy. So the travelers that I read tend to be much more optimistic about the long-term prospects for democracy and self-government in Europe than Americans are generally. And so, but they do a lot of, to my mind, very sophisticated thinking about you know what what does it take. Mm-hmm. To establish a democracy or a republic, you know what are the what are the features historically and sociologically that you need to do this? And so, you know, one of the things I think that is valuable about travelers is that they are forced to think about these issues. You can do it in America in the in the luxury of your library or whatever if you want to, but if you're a traveler, you are confronted with these issues directly. They're in front of your face, and so that's why I think looking at the point of view of travelers. It's very valuable because they were forced to think about these issues. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. Well, uh, we've run out of time, and I want to thank uh, Dan Kilbride for talking with us today about being American in Europe, uh, 1750 to 1860. I want to close the interview, Dan, with our traditional final question, and that is, what are you working on now? What's your current project? I think I'm going to move on to looking at uh, three related questions. I want to know, uh, and again, this stems from the European project, and that's, what did Americans know about Africa? in the decades you know, prior to the 1860s or 1870s. So what do they know about Africa? Uh, how did they find out about Africa? Um, and finally, what did they do with that quote-unquote knowledge, mm-hmm. a lot of which was not knowledge, a lot mm-hmm. of which was just misinformation? Mm-hmm. So what do they know about Africa, how did they find out, and what did they do with it? That's, a, that's what's next, I think. That, that's a project close to my own heart. I would love to... I would love to write a book like that. I, I find it endlessly fascinating what people think about other people because I'm a strong believer that, well, really to put it in the most uh, sort of in the starkest term, I don't think people should write their own history. I think they're pretty bad <laughs> at it. I think they should have other people write their history. I think that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, we've been talking with Dan Kilbride about his book, Being American in Europe, uh, 1750 to 1860. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I want to thank everyone for tuning in today to, 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 to listen, for listening to this interview. But I especially want to thank Dan for being on the show. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, it was my pleasure.